Lord, we thank you for this time. Um, Lord, I pray for, uh, first for uh, Clint and a few of the others who are not feeling well. And uh, pray for uh, Aaron as he's going to be leading worship this Sunday be- because of that. Pray that you would keep him and uh, Steph well. Um, Lord, in general, there's, there's a lot of sickness in the body right now, uh, especially a lot of kids um, that are sick and RSV going around. Um, so, Lord, we, we do pray for, for healing and for better health. Um, we do so humbly, knowing that the purpose of our lives is not necessarily comfort and ease, um, but we know you are a merciful and compassionate God who allows us to come before you with a request. So uh, we humbly come before you with that request. Um, we also come before you asking that you would bless our time tonight. Uh, you are a holy, mighty, compassionate, uh, perfect, loving God uh, who has made yourself known to a completely undeserving people. And we are humbled by that and the fact that we get to look at uh, these pages that you have breathed out according to your plan for our good and our instruction. um, That's amazing. So we gather every Wednesday night And just because it's every Wednesday night doesn't mean it's common. Every Wednesday night and every Sunday morning, anytime we go to small group, anytime we sit as our family and we open up your word and we hear from the one true holy living God, uh, it's amazing. Uh, What's happening there is nothing short of uh, a miracle from the hand of you. So we are humbled and we are encouraged uh, to be able to continue to dig into the word tonight. I pray for the kids and I pray for their time. Um, in uh, these verses in Exodus, and I pray that their teachers would be um, clear, would connect the dots to help them understand what this has to do with Jesus, and uh, that we would see uh, first that it is about you and what you have to say. Um, It's not all about us. Um, So we we approach you carefully uh, tonight, humbly, uh, yet eager to learn more about your design, your will, and your purposes for our lives. Uh, We love you very much, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, kiddos, y'all are dismissed. If y'all will turn to Exodus 26, please. A few discussion questions to get us going before we dive into the text. Um start with an easier one. At this point, where is Moses? On the mountain. Which one? Mount Sinai. Um, And how long is he there for? How long is he visiting? Yep, 40 days, 40 nights. And what is he doing there? Talking to God. Uh, about what? Say that again. The laws. And what is God communicating in those laws? The way they are to live. Yes, he's saying, I am your God, you are my people, this is how you are to live. You don't wing it, you don't fly by the seat of your pants, you don't make it up as you go, uh, you don't try to fake it. Uh, you do what I tell you to do the way I tell you to do it. And he's very, very specific, especially when we're coming to parts on the tabernacle, which we're going to um, cover tonight. The title is Exodus 26, Tabernacle, for those in the media booth who might be wondering. Um, what did the substitutionary sacrifice, the substitutionary atonement accomplish last week? It's, it accomplishes it this week. I'm talking about in our study. Substitutionary sacrifice and atonement. What did that accomplish for Moses and his fellow ministers? What is substitutionary atonement? Say that again? Yeah. Something else taking the place of another. And so particularly here, what are we talking about? A blood sacrifice. 
And the blood sacrifice granted what? Say that again. Forgiveness and cleansing and atonement, which granted access to Yes, God. Yes, access to God. So they were entering into the presence of the one true holy God. And what were they doing when they got there? Worshiping. And what did they actually, they sat and did something, which is crazy. They ate. Yeah, they were dining in the presence of the one true holy God because of the substitutionary sacrifice. So that is what um, allows us to enter into the presence of God is the, is the blood atonement or the blood sacrifice of another. It's a theme that has gone on for a long time and is still uh, a part of our Christian lives today. So what is the point of the sanctuary or the tabernacle? He's explaining to Moses the tabernacle or sanctuary. And what was the point of it? Do you all remember? What's going to happen there? Why is it going to be important? Say it again. Yeah, it's where they will meet with God. It's where God will dwell with them in their, what's the Christian word that begins with an M? In their midst. It's a very good Christian word. In Exodus 25, 9, what does God call for? Yes, a specific pattern for how the tabernacle would be. He calls for exactness. Um, He calls for us to pay close attention. What were the contributions and objects of the sanctuary that we looked at last week? You remember some of them? Say that again. Gold, lots of gold. Lots and lots of gold. What else? Silver. What else? Bronze. And? Yes. And what else? Yeah. And where in the world would these desert-dwelling Israelites get such treasure? (laughs) Egypt. Verbal plundering. We love it. Um, What were some of the objects that they would build with those uh, treasures that they uh, got from Egypt? That we looked at last week particularly. Ark, and what's on the ark? The mercy seat, and what else was just outside of that? Table for bread, and uh, what was on the table for bread? It's really easy. Oh, hold on. On the table for bread was the bread of the presence, and near the table of the bread of the presence was. Golden lampstand, boom, you got it, well done. A.W. Pink, I'm, I'm about to read um, here in just a few moments. I'm, I'm going to read all of Exodus 26. And A.W. Pink refers to this section of Scripture that we're entering into in Exodus as the longest, most blessed, but least read and understood sections of this precious book. It is a fact worthy of our closest and fullest consideration that more space is devoted to an account of the tabernacle than to any other single object or subject treated in the Holy Writ. So what he is saying is there's a lot of airtime given to the tabernacle. Um, There was less time given to the creation account. Um, There was less time given to many other very, very important things in Scripture. A lot of time given to the tabernacle account Yet, it's largely unknown. We kind of, we get to Exodus 20 and it just sort of tapers off after that. Um, And so, this is a really important um, piece of, big piece of Scripture. I mean, we're going to be in this through the large remainder of Exodus, looking at all of these details. Um, God's not, like some pastors just randomly get long-winded. God's not like that. He doesn't get randomly long-winded. This is very specific on on purpose. And so, um, my prayer for y'all has been from Psalm 39. Uh, It's a little piece before he sees the brevity of his days, which I read on Sunday morning, but it says, as I'm used, the fire burned. 
And so my prayer for y'all this afternoon as I was preparing this is that as you muse, as you think specifically on the Scriptures, particularly the makeup of the tabernacle and all of the furniture and things within, that as you muse that the fire would burn and that, that your, your um, treasuring of Christ would, would grow as you see some amazing details in here. As we muse, the fire burns and then we speak. And so I pray that we would only ever speak from hearts that are full of um, affection for the Lord. And so there's a lot of things to think on, think on in uh, this, piece, um, this section of Scripture. Why do you think, before we look at it, why do you think that so much of our Old Testament is dismissed and given little attention? Hard to understand. There are some sections that are really hard to understand. I was going to try to dive into Zechariah 4 tonight, and I was like, nah, no way, I can't do it. Um, yeah, it's not in the red letters, so it's less important that we may think that. What are some other reasons? Yeah, it seemingly lacks relevance to what we're doing today. We're... Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's easy to get bogged down in, in a bunch of the Old Testament. Um, there's a lot of brutality, yeah. 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 Well, Israel, you are my people. That seems unfair to a large majority of the world. And so, um, it might seem like they're just old rituals that lack meaning in our context. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, we need a reminder that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped and competent for every good work. That includes all of these tabernacle details. There is something about these tabernacle details that helps each of us to be more competent and more equipped for the good work that God is calling us to. Turn over, keep your finger in Exodus. We haven't read anything yet. We'll get there, I promise. But turn over to Romans 15, verse 4. Between 2 Timothy 3.16 and Romans 15.4, we have two really um, important reminders as we're digging through difficult parts of Old Testament text. In 14.4, it says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through encouragement, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So these tabernacle details are linked to our endurance, they're linked to our encouragement, and they're, le- they're linked to a well-rounded, um, unfoolish view of hope. So turn to Exodus 26. As I read through this, there is a lot to visualize. Um, you might even say it would be beneficial to import your senses, as I say that over and over and over again. Um, but I've got some pictures tonight because there's so much to visualize. Um, we're going to have some of these pictures going. But this gives a bit of an idea of what I am describing as I read through this text. Um, some of these pictures are humorous in a number of ways. I don't think anyone would have set up camp that close, personally, um, to the Holy of Holies. Um, nor do I think they all have striped tents. A lot of these guys went for striped. I don't know if that was valid or not. But I, I'm going to have these images rolling so that you can just kind of take a few different perspectives, and it can give you an idea of the the width and the length and the height of things, the color of things, what we're talking about here, because there's a lot of details. And as I read through these, read with me, but also glance up from time to time and look at some of the details. There on the left is the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And just outside of that, on this side of the curtain is the holy place. You see the bread of the, the table um, with the bread of the presence. Uh, you see the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and the Holy of Holies. You see the fire um, connecting there to the Holy of Holies. You see the animal skins draped over. You see the altar of incense, which we'll get to next week on the outside. But um, see stripes, lots of stripes. Um, but um, uh, this gives you at least just an idea, a, a little bit of a visual as I read though, through this. So visualize as I read through all of Exodus 26. 
This is God speaking to Moses. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Through Scripture, there's cherubim and seraphim, and cherubim are usually a sign of the holiness of God, and seraphim are usually a sign of our lack of holiness in comparison to God. And so, when you see cherubim, you can think holiness of God, and Eden, and protection, and guarding, and warning. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Think about the detail. Think about someone without modern-day tools doing this. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits. A cubit is 18 inches, so about a foot and a half. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair, for a tent over the tabernacle, eleven curtains you shall make, shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost on the second set. We all tracking? Remember, whatever was written in former days was written for your instruction. Look at verse 11. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on one side and the cubit on the other, other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. You shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram's skins and a covering of goat skins on top of it. So you, you've got over the actual tabernacle, you've got a few layers of animal skins, um, waterproofing it and keeping it covered, and they come down and they're tied down on the sides at the bottom. Verse 15, you shall make upright frames for the tables of acacia wood. The uh, 10 cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So, you shall, uh, so shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle. 20 frames for the south side and 40 bases of silver. You shall make under the 20 frames two bases under one frame for its two tenons and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames. And there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. So that shows that God's saying this and then he's having sort of a little workshop over here, a little break-off session for Moses to learn how to do some of these details. 
Um, Verse 31, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully. I want to say scarefully. I don't know why. Scary little angel winged things. Um, Skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. All right. This was the first night where I almost asked someone else to read the chapter out loud. What are your observations of the tabernacle? From what you've heard, what you've seen, what are the observations of the tabernacle? It shall be whole. One piece, yes. What else? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't go too far. I got like 30 minutes left in the study. There's a lot of... Yeah, a lot of details. Spoiler, I mean, it has a lot to do with Jesus. We'll get to that part in just a second. What else do we notice about it? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Everyone's giving resources. Many are providing the work to shape and work the metals to make this the way that God wants it. The metals in the wood. What other observations y'all have about the tabernacle? Just the tabernacle itself. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. One way, one way. Chodos, Hebrew. Yeah, mobile. Leave the poles in the rings. That is something that's repeated all throughout Exodus. Don't take them out. We've got to be able to pick this thing up the right way when it's time to move. What else do you notice about it in that very detailed photograph? What do you notice there? Where is it in respect to Israel? Center, okay. Uh, from the outside, the, I mean, how impressive does it look from the outside? Huh. H- how impressive would it look on the inside compared to the outside? What's on the inside of that? Lots of gold, meticulous detail, amazing artistry and design um, according to God's plan. So on the outside, you have uh, some fairly simple walls, although those are silver bases and bronze poles and acacia and all that uh, with nice clasps and hooks. Um, But it's mainly animal skins covering the actual tabernacle, and then that's the court, which we'll get to that next week. But it's mainly animal skins and curtains. Then you get inside and you see that there, it's, it's a lot more meticulously detailed on the inside than you would actually be able to see from the outside. That's an important detail. So it's unimpressive from the outside, yet filled with riches and meticulous beauty on the inside. It's mobile. It's in the center of Israel's camp. After hearing me read this, you may be thinking, okay, now what do I do with this? Now, there's an important reminder here that the Bible is about God. It's not just a moral book. It's not just about uh, what we're supposed to get out of it and what do we do. We see this, okay, what do I do? 
we don't just try to figure out what we do in response. First, and always first, we must see what God is doing, what God is communicating, and what God is drawing our attention to. So before we get to the application part, there's, there's way more always to consider about God and his son. Turn to uh, John 1. You can keep your finger in Exodus. We're about to do a lot of turning. In the next 20 minutes, we will go to many different places in the Word. So turn over to John 1. I'm going to read John 1, 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word for that is tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. My question is, if God gave meticulous detail to the building of the tabernacle and then sent Christ to tabernacle among us, what do you think he's communicating to his people? These can be pretty broad answers here. I'm not looking for just one specific. If he, if he gives this meticulous detail to the building of the tabernacle, then he communicates to us that it is Jesus Christ who came and tabernacled among us. What is being communicated by God to his people? Yes, Jesus was not an afterthought. Jesus was not a reaction to a problem. Yes, God intends to dwell among us. What else? Yes, the specificity here is something that should be encouraging to God's people. It's it's like his promises. We see his promises and we're encouraged by him. We should see the specific detail and we should be encouraged by it because when we see him say he came and tabernacled, it's like, oh, wait, what do I know about tabernacle? He, he, He is intentionally leading his people to recall all the details that he shared about the tabernacle. So God's saying, I will be among you. Um, This will happen in Christ. It is specific. There is detail. It is not just however you want to engage Jesus, you can. Um, He will be engaged the way I say, the same way that I dwelt among you uh, in the tabernacle. So him tabernacling among us. Um, Those are broad sweeping statements that I just used and that we all said. Now we're going to get down to details. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 There is, I, I could spend the next month teaching this chapter and then go back and do it again. There's so, so many things like that, so many details where you're like, oh, then there's this, then there's this. Um, uh, be encouraged by that. There's a warning that goes along with that too, though. Um, John Davis gives a very sound and sober warning. He says, it's quite apparent that some parts of the tabernacle were there for only one reason, to give it structural support. I like a guy who can step in and be blunt. Some of the parts of the tabernacle were there just to give support. Don't don't try to Jesus it up. Don't try to overstep what's not there. And so he gives this warning that um, they're not intended to convey some mystical typological meaning. It is very dangerous to impose symbolic meaning on the text which the Scripture does not give to it. So it's a good warning. And what that's going to do for us is this, this is going to be our approach. What symbolism does Scripture give to Scripture? So what we're about to do is we're going to allow Scripture to interpret itself. As we make observations, I want you to remember as we look at details and we make connections and as we're looking through this, I'm hoping that light bulb, light bulb, light bulb, light bulb, I'm hoping you're connecting dots. I'm hoping that, that things are connecting as far as our understanding of Christ, tabernacle, God, Father, Son, Spirit, Church. But remember, there's nothing new under the sun. Every observation that we will consider tonight has been observed by men and women in previous generations as was God's point in carrying out his will as he has done. So as we go through this, what I want us to do is rejoice in finding something that we did not previously know, potentially. Some of y'all may have studied this in detail. You're like, cool, I get to look at it again. Some of y'all may have never looked at this before. 
It's an interesting section of Scripture that for some, if they've studied it, it's a treasure. For some, if they haven't studied it, it's, there's no details that are in your mind right now. And so rejoice in finding something that maybe is new to your thinking that you did not previously know, but remain mindful of the fact that there is nothing new under the sun. So what this is going to lead us to do as we go through here is appreciate the insight of previous generations and accept your responsibilities towards future generations. Because I read the book after book after commentary after commentary after commentary, just one amazing connection after another. I have zero original things to say in tonight's study. There is so much that has been understood by God's um, saints throughout the generations. And so we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Rather than just trying to talk about the symbolism or the potential connection, we're going to go to a verse and we're going to see what, what connection is there, if any. Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 3, say this. This is a prophecy talking about someone who you know. Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Who are we talking about? Jesus. Now turn over to 1 Peter 2, 9. We are going to be turning to a lot of different pieces of Scripture tonight. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Who is the royal priesthood? Believers, saints, children of God, Christians, Jesus followers. Okay. The ones who fully appreciate the beauty of the tabernacle were who? Who got to really appreciate the full beauty of the tabernacle? The high priests. Who were the ones who went inside and offered the sacrifice? The priests, right? So the ones who fully appreciated the beauty of the tabernacle were those who fellowshiped inside. And how did they fellowship inside? By means of what? The sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice? The blood sacrifice. It's very, very important to to include those details every time we can. So the one who fully appreciated the beauty of the tabernacle were those who fellowshiped inside by means of the blood of the atonement. So it is today. The ones who fully appreciate and love Christ are those who are of the royal priesthood of Christ and know him as their personal savior. You see that? You see the pre he's referring to a royal priesthood. We don't just look at royal priesthood in the New Testament and say, ooh, that sounds neat. I like that name too. We say, why is that? Why is he saying royal? Why is he saying priesthood? And he's saying, because of what Christ has done, he has brought us near, like the priests would go into the tabernacle to make atonement for sins and into the Holy of Holies only once a year for the Day of Atonement. And so this is where and Moses would go in, sit by the mercy seat where God would talk to him. And so to see the beauty of the inner workings of the tabernacle, you had to be a priest. And for us, we're considered a royal priesthood who see the beauty of the inner workings of Jesus Christ. It was our tabernacle. Okay? It's not a stretch. We just read verse and verse and have a very clear conclusion. So let's try another one, shall we? Fantastic. Turn to 2 Timothy 1.13. Second Timothy one thirteen. Let's see if this sounds familiar. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now it's your turn. What connection do you see between Christ in this verse and the tabernacle in Exodus? Specific instruction. The pattern. There's the pattern connection. What's the connection between the pattern here and the pattern there? What, what, what's, what are the details around the pattern? What do we do with it? 
They're sound words. And what do we do with them? We hear them and we follow them. Yes, that's very, very important. Because if they did not follow the sound pattern that God set for them in the Old Testament, it was a really big mess up and they would have no place for God to dwell with them, for them to dwell with God. Here it is that Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Exodus 25, 9 says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, show, so you shall make it. Our connection is that God in Christ sets a pattern for us. This is why we are told to keep a close watch on our lives. So my question for you is, what are some of the patterns that have been set for us? If we were hearing from Paul, if we were in the seat of Timothy and we heard, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, what would that pattern be for us? Because we're supposed to pay close attention to it. Yeah. Confession. Gather with God's people. What else? Pray. Did you say for the saints? Yep. Say that again. Observe the Lord's Supper. Okay. Now we're getting some traction. What else? Obey the teaching of the word. What else? Witness. Yes. What else? Fruits of the Spirit. Yes. What else? We could reword this question to say, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is the hearing and then doing? What is the out, outward motion of, of, of being a Christian? What is the life of a Christian? That's what it means to follow the pattern. So we pray, we gather, we go, we serve, we love, we give. We aim to make sure our lives are in step with the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we are compassionate like God. Uh, we know what the importance of baptism is and the Lord's Supper is and the preaching and the song, uh, the sacrifice of praise. There are patterns that we have that we shouldn't be like loosey-goosey with. It's not this nebulous thing. It's like if someone says, what's Christianity? It's like, it's hard to understand, man. It's just kind of this thing. No, it's not just this thing. It's pretty specific. There's a lot of patterns that we've been given. There's a, pa there's a lot of patterns. That's the worst way to say that possible. There's a pattern that we've been given to follow, and that is the life of, uh, of a believer. And it's, an existing Christ has been communicated to us through this, which is breathed out by God, that we can be competent and equipped for the good work that he set before us. Um, yes. Mm hmm Yeah. 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 Does um I don't want to open up too big of a can of worms here, but does anyone know what relativism is? Uh, how would y'all describe relativism? No absolute truth. It's like saying kind of what you just said, that um, it's your own thing. It is what it is. No one can really speak into it. No one can, um, no one can say anything about you doing it wrong. Um, so that doesn't leave much room for encouragement that you're doing it right. It's just it's you and God. It's me and the big man upstairs. That's it. And it's sort of this to each his own kind of thing because there's no absolute source of truth with which I can gather a way of life. And the Bible says, baloney. No, that is not true. That is dangerous. And in fact, it's evil because there is a pattern for us to live by. And there are specifics that God includes for the life of a believer. And relativism um, makes a mockery of that. It really goes to the extent of saying um, that is stupid and foolish. And if you were smarter, you would not take that route. 
but we're believers. And we say, no, I, I want to do, I, I want to follow the pattern of the sound words that I've heard in, in Scripture. And so, um, the whole, it's just between you and God thing is, is not really very true. Um, that's usually what we say when we want to hide our sin from other people. So the question that follows is, are we specific in our obedience? I mean, that, you don't have to answer that. But are we specific in our obedience? Are we ever leaning in the direction of our own preferences or God's will? When something comes up, are you leaning in the direction of, what do I prefer? How do I feel about this? <laughs> the way, just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it is a certain way. And so, um, are we specific in our obedience? Are we following the pattern that we've heard that exists in Christ? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, just as God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Isaiah, you want to crawl in. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, just as God made that the place where he would dwell, so it is with us. And in the coming weeks, we're actually going to talk more about us being uh, the dwelling place of God. Uh, the church being a people, not a building kind of a thing. Um, uh, no, no, it's not slowing it down. That's a really, really good connection. Um, and we're actually going to talk a lot more about that in the next two or three weeks. Um, turn to John 6. Ooh, that's always, that's always dangerous. That's like saying turn to Romans 9. Are you crazy? Turn to John 6. 635, though. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What connection do you see between Christ in this verse and the tabernacle in Exodus? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, these, these connections are great. They just keep going on forever and ever. We're going to keep doing this next week too, uh, just so you all know. So you all read ahead and, and try to look at these connections. Uh, Exodus twenty five thirty, and you shall set the bread of the presence of the table before me regularly. Do you remember who would eat that bread? The priests. And you are a what? A royal priesthood. And Jesus says, what? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. See these connections. This is not coincidental. It's not like, whoa, how about that? No. Yes, how about that? God very intentionally and purposefully is making these connections for his people today. First uh, Peter 2, verses 2 through 3 says, you don't have to turn there, but it says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up unto salvation, if indeed we have tasted that the Lord is good. He says, I'm the bread of life, and he calls us to taste and see that he is good. And there's a connection there in the tabernacle to the bread of the presence, which signifies the continual presence of God, which only exists for us in Christ, and that we are nourished eternally by it. And it was for the priests, and we are called a royal priesthood because of those who are chosen and called in Christ. The connections are awesome. Turn to Second Corinthians 4. Uh, First Peter 2, 2-3. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This actually connects three things. So what are they? That picture, light shining, and if we could go into the Holy of Holies, which is difficult, especially with these pictures, um, there would be, what would be in, the holy, in the, the holy place in front of the table for bread? The what? 
Yeah, golden lampstand, okay? And uh, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did he say that? Creation. So what is being said here by Paul in Corinthians, God through Paul in Corinthians is saying, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, I want to take your minds all the way back to creation so that you can see the bigness and the mighty God who is overall and in all and, and, and completely sovereign and beyond your understanding. Go back to creation. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in your hearts to give um, the knowledge, uh, give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Without Christ, there is no light in our lives. And in the tabernacle, that light was an everlasting light, which we saw from the abundance of oil, which we will look at next week. But the connections are amazing. Exodus 25, 31 through 40 is where we see the golden lampstand. And it's interesting, in John 1, John, uh, John the Baptist came proclaiming the true light which enlightens everyone. That's, what, that's, what, that's how he refers to Christ in John 1. The true light which enlightens everyone. Now, for the last one, turn over to Mark 15. Mark 15. Yes. That is in holy place by the table of the bread of the presence. Yes. Uh huh. Correct. It is very lit. Yes. Yes. Did you see that? Yeah. That's what's in behind that veil. So the the light of God is very bright, and in, in, in the holy of holies, there's no need for that cool lamp with the seven shoots from the. Was it almond tree? And that what it was? Almond tree. Yeah. I promise I've read this. I promise. Um. Uh, Mark 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cries with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Think about that verse and turn to Hebrews 10. You see the veil ripping from top to bottom. Hebrews 10. Start in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, this should be so encouraging. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That thing you were talking about earlier, Chad, about the terrifying holy of holies thing, this should be a very encouraging and comforting, comforting verse for that. So what connection do we see between Christ in these verses and the tabernacle in Exodus? Yeah, the Holy of Holies is not reserved for one person. Why? And, yeah, his blood covers us all. And, and what else? Why else is that open now? Yeah, the veil was torn, and what, what was torn of Christ? His flesh. So the veil formed a barrier to, pre to prevent access to the Holy of Holies, into which the high priest alone entered on the yearly day of atonement. God tore the veil from the top to the bottom when Christ, our great high priest, bore our sins once for all on the cross. It's beautiful. This is beautiful symbolism and imagery and detail that we can rejoice in because we know what happened on the cross. We know that our Lord conquered death. That's the gospel. That's the good news that he, he, he died on the cross and he conquered death. Three days later, he comes to life. 
And so for those who are in Christ, we have rejoicing when we look at the lampstand, we look at the table, the bread of the presence, we look at the torn veil, we look at the holy of holies and the holy place, we look at um, uh, the priesthood, and we say, God, we are so blessed in Christ to have such access to God the Father because of his blood sacrifice and his atonement. The rent veil indicated the end of the old Jewish religion, and at that point, the gospel door had flung wide open to even the Gentiles and to us as we sit here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time tonight. Um, These verses are difficult, and it's hard to climb in and try to visualize what's going on here, and that in itself is difficult enough, and then to try to make the connection to Jesus and then see what you're doing there and see how ultimately at the end we, we are blessed. We are considered a royal priesthood with access to the Father because of the atoning, uh, um, propitiatory, uh, sacrificial blood of the innocent lamb who died on our behalf, whose flesh was torn like the veil was torn to provide a way for us to, to, be, to come to you. So we know from all of this that the gospel is not just you need forgiveness. And the gospel is not just you're a sinner. But the gospel is that our sin, uh, our filth, because of the work of Christ, we're not just forgiven, but we are granted access to the Father. That's our, that's our hope, Lord, is that we will dwell with you eternally in your presence, seeing you as you really are and rejoicing forever. Lord, tonight, just in a few verses, you have, you have brought us from creation to eternity and shown us all these details because of what you said in the, in the verses about the tabernacle and what you revealed about Christ in your breathe that word. I pray that you would help us to treasure this and, and as we leave here, I really pray that each of us would have going on within us the thing where as, as we muse, the, the flames and the fires burn. To where as we think more about this and as we go back in our own quiet times and our own devotion times and our own meditations and we look at this, that we would be incredibly encouraged to know uh, what access we've been granted, uh, what has been entrusted to us, and what is expected of us, that we would follow specifically the pattern that you have set before us. I pray uh, for sweet connections between these verses and what Derek will be preaching on out of 2 Corinthians on Sunday. And I pray that you would allow us to see those connections so that we can walk faithfully in the things you call us to. You're great and greatly to be praised. We worship you, we praise you, we honor you, we humble ourselves before you. And we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.